Welcome back to Teaching with the Body and Mind. I'm Mike, and I'm here with Tom. Hi, Mike. And Joey. Hello. And with Becky again. Hi. Ross is still off gallivanting up north. But for now, uh, Becky has some experience in uh, special ed classrooms and inclusion classrooms. And we wanted to get that perspective because we talk a lot about movement and things with, for the most part, we're assuming typically developing kids, I think. Not always, but we don't often bring up things that might be a little different with different populations. So we thought it'd be neat to hear a different perspective. And the perspective of someone who's also not, I let you speak for yourself, but working in a, <laughs> in a public school setting, we've all been in independent. Well, no, Tom was in public school, but in, in a school. slightly less formal mm-hmm. program. So yeah. this is, this is a readiness based. Yeah. Program. So I work in a public pre-K program. Um, it's two and a half hours a day and there are 20 kids in a class um, six of whom are kids with identified special needs at any one time. So um, one thing that has been really interesting for me, making the shift from a program where I have a lot more freedom to do what I want um, to a, a program that's really focused on academic readiness is um, some people are really supportive of kids' need for movement and big body play, and other people think that doesn't need to be a part of the curriculum at all because they're only there for two and a half hours. And of course, they all play outside the whole time they're home. Um, which is not true. I think for a lot of our kids, the only time they get big body play is at school. Um, and as having kids in the class that have like delays in terms of language skills or social emotional skills, I think that big body play is really useful for them to kind of be able to be a little more on the same level as their peers. It's something that everyone can participate in with support. Yeah. Oh, that's, a, that's really interesting that the, that they can meet on the same level physically. Whereas, you know, maybe not on other developmental levels. Right, because they've got verbal, you, verbal delays or... Uh, you were telling us a story before, so maybe you could... Yeah, so I was thinking of a specific student that I worked with this year who was really... He had really low arousal. Like, he just wasn't very interested in things. He had a really low affect where he wasn't interested in, like, participating in play with other people or even showing emotion really but the one activity that he really loved was tickling like roughhousing with other kids and even though he didn't have a lot of language he would participate in that he would smile he would laugh and that was something that typically developing kids in the class could could do with him and it was really positive and he didn't need a lot of language to participate in it but at the same time it was a motivating time for him to use language because he would copy a model to ask someone to tickle Right there, and there was and a social yeah, was exchange going on, to do even that. if it was just body language for the most part, mm-hmm. and then little bits of. Would verbal. he initiate, or would you? Did you just know that he liked it, and so not just know, but did you know that he liked it, and so that you? He would started to it? initiate with certain kids that would play that with him, really and so nice. that was huge for him because yeah. he was a kid that would look right through you if you were sitting next to him or talking to him about something else. But it's a form of play that he actually sought out then. By the he end really of the sought year. out and and other kids would seek him out to play it because it was a game that they had together. So he wasn't just that guy that I play with because it's like kind of the right thing to do. Right. It wasn't he like was, charity to go play with exactly. this boy. It was, it was genuinely fun. mutually enjoyable. It was something they could yeah, do together. Which a lot of kids with special needs don't always have those experiences I'm guessing in your classroom where what, about six of Six of the 20 Mm -hmm. usually have special needs. And it was a way to work. I mean, those things were his goals for the year. Right. Interacting with his peers, Uh um, making a comment to someone else, and instead of sitting down with him during playtime and making him do that through 
using flashcards with me or some structured right yeah um like academic activity he could do that by playing with other kids yeah and that was okay an okay way for you to to work with him i'm just curious about um understanding within your ranks if you will like like that's an okay way what to... do the other teacher think right yeah. I mean, I think there's well, or really... even just your administration when you're doing the IEP and well no flashcards was the method we decided on or I, I don't know as much about how that that's a stuff... really good point and th- so the kids in my classroom are coming in with IEPs that I didn't write right so sometimes their goals are really specific in well terms IEPs of... are usually very specific right but sometimes they're like a lot of the ones I write are like will attend to a group activity right. for two minutes with three prompts or something but sometimes they're very academic focus. So I think you have to be able to articulate how they're learning by doing things that are actually motivating and interesting to them and doing things that the rest of their peers are doing. Right. So being a skilled teacher means you can navigate yes. these and I know administrative that the, challenges. With this particular child, the teacher he had the year before felt like that this tickling play got overly silly or physical. Overly silly. Now, there's a right. word for early childhood. Like, no one ever, was very, like, in terms of wrestling-type play, it was extremely gentle. Right. It was literally sitting next to each other on a child-sized couch and tickling each other and maybe, like, leaning on top of another person Oh, really? That was bit. it? That, that was it. I mean, it was not even wrestling play and, like... There was, I don't think there was even the potential for being hurt. And but how, some people are really uncomfortable with that kind of contact. Was he four when you had him last year? He was five. He was five. Okay. And I think maybe part of it was that he was coming from a self-contained room. He was really small. He had some physical needs. But he wasn't in danger. Like He wasn't no. going to get hurt in this kind of play. But it was overly silly. Else. And, yeah, I, I can't help think of the word, the term overly silly without hearing John Cleese's voice. <laughs> Well, it shouldn't overly silly be like what we're doing most of right. the day. I mean, how fun. <laughs> well, and the thing is, is that we want kids to be mo- motivated to learn. And in a good inclusion program, it's fun and everybody wants to do something. Right. And so, yeah. So hearing that story, it's like, this is the kid who's interacting and that should be the motivation. And, you know, I would hope more special ed teachers would see that as this is a great way to do it. If you have a child with language delays including physical play is a great way to have them be ex- like exchanging socially, even though they don't have the verbal skills yet. And then some verbal verbalization will come. But when you think about it, the more typically developing child is going to be at that same level. Cause they're probably only going to say little things too. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Right. Tickle me. Stand out. They're, or, not, they're not narrating paragraphs. Probably. Yeah. Right. Well, As opposed to some like pretend play where, I mean, pretend play can work where, you be the dog, and so the nonverbal kid goes around just saying meow or, or sorry, right. dog. But it feels a little, like in this kind of physical play, it feels a little more mutual. Like with yeah. chasing games, right. you don't have to be able to articulate right. He's a complicated scenario yeah. to yeah. do that. Yeah. And I think also because we have a lot of kids who are working on sort of like adaptive goals in terms of like self calming strategies and things like that, it's people sometimes shy away from sort of like really active play because they feel kids get too amped up. But I feel that they need to have some opportunities to get amped up so that they can practice getting calm again. Right. If the and whole day is spent like doing deep breaths and right. you never, sitting in the quiet What do you need corner, to calm down from? Um, right. You don't have an opportunity to like be like, be like a typical kid because typical kids are going to be running around the playground right. and they are going to right. be. The whole idea is that games. you want to have this arousal level that goes up and down and the child is able to recover from high arousal and go, you know, sort of more in 
when right. they're in homeostasis. And if they go into low arousal, they come back up. And not going into one of those doesn't right. keep them... And specifically when it's in the context of activities that five-year-olds are doing. Right. I mean, it's one thing to create this artificial situation in which you're getting a kid really riled up. But it's another right. to be like, no one in our class can play chase in the motor room. Like, there was a rule that you couldn't run in the gross motor room. For, in the gross for motor serious. room. So. For serious. <laughs> and so I was the only person that thought this was a weird rule because and why was it kids need to run. It might not be safe. You might crash into someone. Or people get too crazy and they can't calm down. So for me, that's an opportunity to teach kids how to calm down. Right. And we had a ritual every day at the end of motor time where we, like, did some stretches and we did the breathing ball and it... We went back to our class. Right, but there's one thing to get amped up and do that physical activity and then do the breathing ball or, you know, versus just doing a breathing ball. I mean, it's such a different thing. And it's not true body awareness. Like a yoga instructor I know is the one who really opened my eyes to this because I met with her to talk about how we get kids to calm down. And she's saying, well, body awareness is being aware of your body. So running around and then realizing that you're out of breath and your heart's beating fast Mm -hmm. is body awareness too just as much as doing the breathing ball and feeling your you know tummy rise and fall with the breath and all that and she said Mm -hmm. both things are body awareness what's not body awareness is when you just try to stay calm at all times when you're not feeling it like you're not being aware of your body's needs and you're not aware of your power to get calm yeah i mean i spent so much time at school just helping kids get from a really amped up state to being able to just be in the class and be comfortable. And it's, that's a skill that they need practice with. When I was and they need someone say, to help them instead of just being like, you can never be excited. Right. And if you're excited, that's bad. Right. And it's not something we expect of a typically developing kid. We would allow them those states. To me, when I think about having a child be included in later, you know, in kindergarten, first grade and on, one of the first things they need to do is how to self-regulate, go from those high arousal or low arousal states and get back to a point where they can participate in a classroom activity. What did you say? Attend to a classroom activity. With with less than three prompts. With less than three <laughs> prompts. Uh, so, if only I could do that. I'm a little curious. Um, do, I, I, I think we probably had some similar coursework when we were in school because we went to the same university, but how much you felt like focusing on just special education big body play was was talked about i'm thinking about like all the sensory aspects of mm-hmm. of like all the deep pressure that you can have in in wrestling and all these other kinds of things it just in my casual experience seems so beneficial to to a lot of kids who um i'll say sensory challenges being the biggest thing that i feel like i see in in not in a school that doesn't have a, a formal special education program i'm curious how much you felt like your education prepared you um for these kids uh, body needs. I'm just, I'm just wondering if it's, if it's like, I mean, I know there's motor classes, but I'm just right. wondering if there's a little more emphasis because the kids have special needs or if it's, uh, or cause you're preparing to work with kids. I, with special mean, needs. I mean, in the program I attended a little bit, but it was much more focused on the spectrum of ages, not yeah. specifically early childhood right. and not yeah. in a setting with typically developing kids. Like making friends with an OT is like one of the best things that I think any early childhood teacher could do. Here, here. Like, that's, I feel, too, that's my whole, like, the book I wrote and stuff is, all it is is an OT perspective on teaching in a classroom. Uh-huh. 
and it really changed what I do in a classroom. When I have a kid who's having trouble, I look at it from this perspective of, well, what it's it, most of it's about self-regulation and sensory input. And what am I doing to help this child? I think it's kind of fascinating because it. it's kind of a sign of uh, that we're training people or preparing people. You know, it, it's the whole teaching with the body. Mind. We're, we're, we're so focused on the mind. The mind. And then mm-hmm. the professionals are like, oh, but they have these bodies and they're complicated. And so we're seeking out OTs. Right. You know, I mean, right. and every, that's the OT's job, every, not the teacher's every, job. What conference have you been to that hasn't had a session on sensory processing? And right. that isn't full of people scribbling notes because they're trying to figure out... Yeah, uh, and it's you know, not taught in... Yeah. Like, it's not considered part of how to become a teacher. And yet, with especially early childhood... And sensory processing is just code for having a body. I mean, right? <laughs> right. It's, that's like, Everybody you know, has to process... Every- <laughs> sensory input. Yeah. So I don't know, it's just sorry. It's a little bit of a of a tangent, but I think it's kind of an interesting. Um, I don't think it is at all because I think it's so, especially at the early childhood level, like extremely prevalent for all kids. Like yeah. all kids have a sensory thing. I mean, I think all of us as adults do. Like learning We've about sensory processing as an adult. It was like, oh, <laughs> I totally like needed X, Y, and Z as a kid, and I never got that. Yeah. Um. So I think it's really important for us to be aware of and be able to think about and then be able to teach kids how to how to deal with that. Like, yeah. I don't think it's realistic to have an extremely quiet classroom all the time because one child is upset by noise. You have to teach them how to get headphones or how to right. go to a quiet spot or how to ask to take a break. Yeah. Because we want them to be out in the world. The world is noisy and messy. Well, this is a great conversation and... I'm hoping, Becky, we could continue it next week, if that's okay with you. So we'll talk more about this next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Teaching with the Body and Bond. We'll be back again next week with another episode. Music is by Big Wheel Popcorn.